0: Well friends, hasn't it been so good to uh, make our way through the Lord's Prayer and there we read that Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. So we say, Amen. But as we pray this prayer, I want to ask you a simple question. What is God more concerned about, your spiritual life or your physical life? What's God more concerned about, your spiritual life or your physical life? You see, I think there are two ways that we tend to split up our life, Alio. There's kind of there's the sense in which we split it up into the spiritual things and the physical things, where you might bring to mind pretty quickly some things that sit in those categories. But I think there's another way that we do it as well. Secondly, Alio, I think we tend to split up. Well, there's the stuff that there's the stuff that I need God for, and then there's the stuff that I can take care of. And and actually, depending on what it is and the kind of mood that I'm in and, and just what else is going on, there's the threshold point of where it flips from one to the other. Well, that can change during life, can't it? So in the physical category, we have we have things like our houses and clothes and work and school and holidays, all of that sort of stuff. Well, surely the spiritual, that's that's church and Bible study and telling people about Jesus. And maybe the kind of character that I want to be, the relationships that I'm in, that's more spiritually inclined. We, I think we tend to divide things into that spiritual and physical. And then, and then there's those categories of, of the things that we... Well, actually, I've got it fairly well sorted. You know, the day-to-day stuff. There's, there's work. I go and I do that and work is, work is pretty, pretty all right. But actually, on the other hand, when perhaps there's conflict at work, or actually, if I've lost my job and I'm, I'm looking for work, well, that maybe, maybe that tips it into the category that I, I need God's help in it here. You should reflect on the th- sorts of things in your own life that actually I tend to think of that way until it reaches threshold. So I think we kind of have this, kind of this spectrum going on and these two different categories. There's the spiritual things, the physical things, the stuff I can do, the stuff I need God to take care of. But then we let Jesus to teach us how to pray. Give us today our daily bread. You see, so far Jesus has taught us to pray and and, and he's really lifted our vision to see our Father in heaven. And we're asking God to hallow his name, to bring his kingdom, to accomplish his will. We want all of that to happen here on earth just as it does in heaven. That's the first half of the prayer. We've been looking to God and asking for His things, for His kingdom, for His will, for His name to be honoured. But as you can see, as we've broken it down here, by the time you get to verse 11, which is where we've got up to this morning, the focus shifts from you and, and, and your name to us and our daily bread. But actually, Jesus shows how all of this flows through, right? We're set with this kingdom vision to start with and then actually, I've put a little break there just to make it obvious for us, but Jesus just continues on. If verse 9 and 10 is part A of the prayer, well, that's the foundation for part B in verse 11 to 13. We're still praying in light of the end, in light of God's kingdom to come. And so, I think we might expect Jesus just to be all spiritual about it, right? Right? We've been praying for spiritual things like you know, God's kingdom, his, his will being done and surely, hallowed be your name. If ever there's a church word that doesn't get used anywhere else, it's hallowed. Like that's got to be spiritual, right? Well, apart from the fact that in the last few weeks we've seen how really practical and, and tangible that, half of, that first half of the prayer actually is. Well, I think the point that Jesus is making for us here is that he's, he's absolutely got our physical life on view as well. Give us today our daily bread. He's concerned for our physical well-being too. Now over the last couple of weeks, we've used three really helpful questions to explore this further. What does it mean? How should we pray it? How should this shape us? So we're going to work through that together too. But we're going to use that passage that we read from 1 Timothy 6 to help us to reflect on the, the second and third questions in a little bit more practical sense. So really, what, what does it mean? Give us today our daily bread. It's a pretty short sentence, but I think it's worth us working our way through it phrase by phrase. At its most obvious, what does it mean to pray? Give us. It's actually worth pausing and reflecting that, that is, that's a clear expression of our dependence upon God. It's probably the briefest way of acknowledging that we need God, that, that you are the creator, we are your creatures, you are the king, we are your people. We need you. Give us. So so what does something as simple as that mean for the way that we pray? What does it look like to sit under Jesus and be taught how to pray? Well, I think it teaches us to express our dependence. So in our prayers, to take the time to acknowledge that, that God is the giver, to give him thanks for his good gifts, to be really explicit and humble in stating that we need him. What do your prayers look like? Do you actually say, give me? I need you to give me. Well, then also, the sentence goes on, give us today. Now, that actually just really does mean exactly what it says, right? Today. And to state what we might kind of so easily gloss over, I think it implies that this prayer is to be prayed daily. In fact, it helps us to see that the whole of the prayer is something that Jesus intended for his people just to pray like this Daily? I think that's really important. We'll see that next week when we come to asking for forgiveness. That should be a daily thing. But at this point, it's good for us to remember that we're not asking for an annual supply or a kind of a, a week's shopping trip to fill the fridge. Give us today. It makes the request urgent and, and repeated and, and consistent. So then let's pray daily and and repeatedly and consistently. You know, sometimes I think we feel like, oh, if I put the prayer before God, well, that means he knows it's on my shopping list and I don't want to bother him. I'll I'll just leave that with him. Except just a couple of verses before the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us all and his disciples that God knows what we need before we even ask him. It's not that he needs to know what's, what's lacking in our lives, but that we need to be taught to consistently, repeatedly come before him today. Today, today. So give us today our daily bread. Now, that word, unlike today, our daily bread, that is an interesting one because when Jesus uses it here and in Luke's Gospel, it's the only time in written literature, except for people quoting Jesus, that that word's used. It seems like he sort of had this idea, has its roots in the Old Testament, but believe me, it means the scholars have spilled all kinds of ink working out, what does daily bread mean? I think it's actually pretty straightforward. First reading of it gives it to us fairly easily. Because Jesus spoke in Palestine, the place of Israel, and, and bread was just the daily staple. I think if Jesus was in Southeast Asia, he probably would have taught his disciples to pray, give us our daily rice. Maybe if he was in Africa, it would have been something like, give us our daily maize. If he was Irish, it would have been potatoes, surely. But I don't think it implies that you know, whoever, whatever we're asking for, we all have to be carb loading every day, as if bread is the only thing on the menu. I also don't think it means it's only survival rations that he has on view. It's not Jesus assuming that his disciples would live on the edge of poverty as if bread was the only thing they could ask for. After all, some of his disciples, they owned family fishing businesses. Matthew was a wealthy tax collector. It seems that they probably had a range of financial circumstance, yet they all needed to learn to pray this way. Because it's an expression that represents the basics of life. You know, in what we read, and then Bob the Bird kind of highlighted for us, Jesus expanded on that just a few verses later on. He wasn't just talking about bread. He he then expanded it to talk about food and clothing, and he he then expanded it further just to talk about our body and, and life, the kind of physical reality of being human. Daily bread, it's an expression for the basics of life. Give us today our daily bread It's a prayer that both reflects and then also kind of creates an attitude of dependence upon God to provide what we need. And I think there's something pretty remarkable about this. Because in a life where we tend to divide the spiritual and the physical, I think this prayer is a wonderful acknowledgement that God cares about all of us, body and soul, physical and spiritual, big things and small things, times of crisis but also just the day by day by day needs. He doesn't carve us up into the bits that matter and the bits that don't. And contrary to what is the kind of floating around us, your body isn't just a shell to contain your soul. God honours the ordinary things of life by sticking them right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. So, so what does it teach us to pray? Well, well, if nothing else, praying for, your, for, the Lord, for the, your daily bread is to ask God for those physical needs and, and the means that he's given for them to be met, like your job that pays for what's in your fridge. I think that's in this kind of category. In practical terms, I think it means acknowledging our dependence on God for the things that we just assume that we can take care of. And on the other hand, it means like Bob the Bird highlighted, It means giving him our anxieties about the things that that we might be so tempted to to spend so much of our week chasing after, trying to secure, anxious over. And so we pray for the simple things in life as we depend on the Father in heaven who loves us. Well, and it's for this reason, it's for the reason that, that this prayer I think really burrows right into some really significant kind of attitudes and perspectives that we have, that we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think actually there's enough hints here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that the Apostle Paul probably had these particular teachings of Jesus in mind as he wrote to Timothy. There's a number of word plays and ideas that he has in common that suggest that it's almost like he's writing to Timothy having just read Matthew chapter 6. And so we're going to consider how this shapes us, what it looks like to pray and to live in light of this prayer. Now as we come to the book of 1 Timothy, we're picking up a letter from the Apostle Paul, a great leader in the church, writing to Timothy, a colleague and if you like an apprentice leader in another church and he's writing to him warning about teachers who would lead the church astray and not just because they're saying things that are untrue but fundamentally because they are motivated by personal gain. Instead of praying kind of your kingdom come, these are people who've come to think that church work... Is really a means for my kingdom to come. And so that's the contrast that we we jump into when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We see that when they let go of the gospel, those people, they've they've let go of the right kind of contentment and discontentment. That's what we're going to see. They've failed to be content and discontent in the right kind of ways that I think takes us right back to the core of what it means to pray, give us today a daily bread. So have uh, 1 Timothy 6 open. We're not going to go through all of this in, in fine detail, but just to see how some of these thoughts come through. You see, in contrast to those church leaders who might think of the gospel as a means to financial gain, Paul wrote there in verse 6 and 7, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Isn't that a wonderfully honest assessment of who we are and what we like? Born naked, die naked. Born empty-handed, take nothing with us. And doesn't that straight away put our our society's fascination with accumulating as much stuff, as many toys in the garage as you can have? It's not yours in the first place. You can't take it with you. And so I think straight away that simple perspective which is taught all the way through the Bible, that should shape the things that we are concerned about and long for because it's a perspective that allows us to be content. That doesn't mean that we're kind of content in a way that we're just just reckless about money or we think we can't own a car because that's not on the list of daily bread. Because I think we've seen that Jesus' concern is, is just this broad category of the basics of life we turn to God in our dependence on him. But Paul makes the contrast between this contentment on the one hand and the desire to get rich The love of money, on the other hand. And let's be honest, it is so normal to love money, right? Not many people say it quite that way, but my wife and I, we were having a conversation, chatting with a non-Christian friend the other week, and he said it as bluntly as that. He was talking about his job, it's pretty boring, pretty uninspiring, but there's the prospect of a promotion on hand, which probably won't be much more inspiring, but it comes with a pay rise. And so he says, well, it'd be really great if the the promotion comes off, because I just love money. He actually said it like that in conversation. And let's be honest, he's just saying what most people are thinking. I love money. And this is a guy who's already earning, I don't know, twice the average Australian wage. But it's just not enough. Give us today our daily bread. Father, teach me contentment. Now, on the other hand, I was so encouraged by a different conversation with a Christian friend recently who shared that at a particular point in his life as a younger man, he was given the opportunity to head down the road of high finance It was almost guaranteed to earn bucket loads of cash. In fact, he's got a friend who went that way and is rolling in it. But he said no, because he could see the potential for him to be totally consumed by the love of money. Give us today our daily bread. Father, guard my heart. See, I wonder whether Jesus and Paul uh, both had Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9 in view, because as you can see, it here speaks of our daily bread. The prayer of Proverbs 30 is, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal. And so dishonor the name of my God. Father, give us today our daily bread. Teach me to be satisfied with what you give me for today rather than constantly chasing after more of it. Father, give us today our daily bread. Protect me from the love of money but instead help me to love the things that you love. Because did you notice that as we read through 1 Timothy chapter 6, it wasn't like Paul said, just turn off all desire. Be content, don't want anything. Now, if you've had any connection with Buddhism or plenty of other world views, you'll recognise that. That's, that's the way that plenty of philosophers and gurus over the years said, De- deal with it by just turn off desire. Actually, no. Paul actually shows that there's actually the ability to be content is because you're, you're actually driven by a godly discontent. And after all, have you noticed that the first half of the Lord's Prayer, that is actually really all about being discontent. It's full of godly longing for things to be different. Hallowed be your name, because I hate to see your name being dishonoured. Your kingdom come, because I long for the blessings of your loving rule. Your will be done, because I am simply discontent with life that's lived any other way. It's, it's a prayer that is just overflowing with a godly kind of discontent, a longing, a hunger. And you see that come through in the way that Paul spoke to Timothy, which I think shapes the way that we reflect on how that plays out in life. Verse 11 and 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So flee greed rather than walk into its trap. Be content and pray. Give us today our daily bread. But it doesn't mean switch off your desires Look at the strength of these words. Pursue, fight, take hold. This is, this is actually the expression of deep passion, of deep longing, that God would give us the right kind of discontent. Give us today our daily bread. Teach us contentment. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Grow in me the right kind of discontentment. Now, we don't have time this morning to dig into that next chapter that follows um, from verse kind of uh, 13 through 16. But I'd really encourage you to read through it in the week to come because it is a wonderful passage that reminds us of the bigness and the glory, the majesty of God, the one that we can look to And expect him to give, in his love and mercy and grace, life in its fullness. You see, I think when we pray, give us today our daily bread, we've got to take away, I don't know what image comes to mind for you, but I think it all too easily brings to mind this image of kind of slightly scrawny, malnourished kids coming to their Scrooge father, kind of begging begging for just a, a crust. That is not the image on view. It is a picture of loved, nurtured, wise children turning to their loving father in joyful dependence because it's so good to come to him but I do want to spend just a couple of minutes unpacking the significance of the final paragraph that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse beginning at verse 17 because I think this shows us what what someone looks like when they pray as Jesus taught us Give us this day our daily bread. Let me read it for us again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Thanks, Elio, to the next slide. You see... Oh, That's because I've got it following. It's not your fault. It's my fault, mate. The point is, the first thing that that Paul notes is that we can expect that there will be rich Christians. And command those who are rich in this present world. He's not talking about rich people out there. He's talking about the rich Christians amongst Timothy's church. There will be some people who are totally sold out for Jesus totally caught up in the things of his kingdom, with a godly discontent for his kingdom to grow. And yet in God's wisdom and in his provision and grace, they're rolling in cash. And yet even their life should be a picture of godly contentment flowing out of a godly discontentment. And I think that's helpful to note because it's easy to come to a passage like that, that's speaking to people saying, you know, if they're rich, then they should be generous. I think we can easily dismiss this idea of contentment as if it only applied to the poor, as if if that's what you do if you haven't really made it in the world, if you don't really have any real idea of what it's like to live the good life. But here we see God's way for the rich, acknowledging that there will be people who love Jesus who are accidentally loaded, because God's been kind. And it helps us to see that this is for all of God's people. So how would someone who is drenched in the perspective of the Lord's Prayer live? I think they they actually don't care if they're rich in money. But they long to be rich in good deeds. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, Paul said, and and to be generous and willing to share. That's this picture here as it comes up shortly. Because our world says that wealth is for security and comfort and self-indulgence and self-glorification. Look at me. I've made it. But here we see that, that those, they might be rich in money, but if they love Jesus, they will long for a different kind of wealth. They might have a lot of money, but they don't love it. They love God and his kingdom. They love people and their community and so the wealth is it's not a means for self-gain it's a means for self-giving for for generosity that's what a life looks like that prays genuinely daily lord give us today our daily bread let your kingdom come in my life as i surrender everything you've given me to your plans and to your purposes now to speak personally on this, this is actually something that, that Peter and I have wrestled with at, at various points over the years. I used to work as a GP and there was more than one occasion when I'd be meeting someone new and introducing my wife, who at that time worked as a lawyer, and you could see that eyebrows rise. Power couple was the phrase that someone used. Pretty honest, pretty blunt. Another non-Christian mate put it even more bluntly, you must be rolling in it. Because that's what the world values, isn't it? That's what the world values in life and in people, I think. And yet we are so very thankful to God that he has shown us where true wealth is found, not in the size of our bank balance, but in the treasure that he has safeguarded for us in heaven. Now, I'm always cautious about sharing an example like that because it can sound like this sort of backhanded self-praise and this sort of false humility. But I share it because I want you to know that the truth is I have felt the extreme temptation of wealth, On many occasions, I know what it feels like to live very comfortably and to be thinking, yeah, I really need to upgrade the skis, get a new mountain bike, to always want more. Which is why I'm so thankful that Jesus teaches us to pray with the end in mind. Give us today our daily bread. Teach me contentment. Your kingdom come. Teach me the right kind of godly and discontent, the things I should really long for. But of course there are far more inspiring stories than just our own and I really want to share one with you that I have just been so glad to have stumbled upon. Um, this book uh, is a, a biography of a woman called Hannah Moore uh, uh, called Fierce Convictions now, you might not have heard of Hannah Moore, but you will have surely heard of our close friend, William Wilberforce. He was famous in the 19th century as an English politician who lobbied for the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom. Well, Hannah Moore was a friend of his, a wealthy, famous poet and playwright circulating in the London social scene at the time who came to share Wilberforce's fierce convictions of the gospel and, and his fierce convictions of the life that should be transformed by it. And in her story we're shown a wonderful example of a life lived in the pursuit of a godly contentment, in the midst of you know the whole smorgasbord of, of the elite life in London at the time, whilst actually a deep godly discontentment that longed for the things of God's kingdom. It's actually really helpful, I find, as a read, that that he's very honest and and because it's someone's life, it's not just in theory, it's just playing out just how lavish the life of the London elite was and yet how unsatisfying it. So to use a pun, because I love puns, there is no doubt that Hannah Moore wanted more. But the beauty of her discontentment was that she wanted more of the things of God's kingdom, not the things of this world. And in addition to the abolition of slavery that she worked for, she also worked for a whole host of other things that you can read about here, women's education, a whole bunch of rights and and, and privileges, support for the poor, lots of different wonderful things. But she did it using all of her, her writing, her creative thinking, her social influence, her wealth. She was one of England's great financial givers. And actually, as part of a lovely sort of reflection of her enduring legacy she and William Wilberforce together with a bunch of other people formed what was Holy Trinity Clapham a church just out of London in the in the rural area where they, you might have heard of the Clapham sect on the rural fringe of 19th century London well HTC as it's known Holy Trinity Clapham that is still a thriving place of gospel proclamation though now because London has just grown and grown and grown it's swallowed it up clapham turns out is not some rural uh, little quaint spot on the edge of london it's it's one of the leafy green very wealthy inner suburbs of that massive city and holy trinity clapham is about to celebrate their 250 year anniversary and throughout that whole time they have stood proclaiming the gospel of god's kingdom right in the midst of london's rich and famous It's a book worth reading because Hannah Moore was a woman rich in this present world, as Paul described someone to Timothy. But it's not where her hope rests. She had a far more certain, a far more enduring, more captivating vision of life in God's kingdom. And that's what overflowed in her life of, of good deeds and exceeding generosity. I think it's a great picture of a life that is shaped praying in light of the end. Because as Paul wrote to Timothy, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, giver of all that we have, give us today our daily bread. Teach us to pray humbly and daily for the big things and the small things. Teach us the great gain of contentment and grow in us the godly kind of discontentment that longs for your kingdom to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.